Hello, and welcome to episode 10 of Not Reserving Judgment, a podcast about the latest intrigues, triumphs, and outrages in Canadian constitutional law. I'm Josh DeHaas, counsel with the Canadian Constitution Foundation. I'm Joanna Barron, executive director of the Canadian Constitution Foundation. And I'm Christine Van Guyen, the CCF's litigation director. In today's episode, we'll talk about whether the Ontario legislature can punish one of its members for her ignorant and offensive tweets. We'll share our bad legal takes of the week where we take a lighthearted look at some of the week's legal opinions that didn't quite land. We'll update you on a challenge to COVID-19 travel restrictions involving vaccination requirements and a certain former Newfoundland premier. But first, let's talk about the pleasant surprise we got last week from the Supreme Court of Canada, which sided with Alberta and agreed with some of our arguments in what I think is one of the most important federalism decisions in decades. Christine, give us the update. Yeah, so this was with respect to the Impact Assessment Act, which is a complex piece of legislation that was introduced in 2019 to replace the Harper-era Environmental Assessment Act. Uh, The 2019 version, the Impact Assessment Act, was quickly nicknamed the No More Pipelines Law because under this law, it's highly unlikely that new pipelines would be built in Canada. But it's important to keep in mind that the Impact Assessment Act is not limited just to pipelines, even though this is what the nickname is. It actually affects all kinds of projects, including projects that are entirely within the borders of a single project province, like mines, oil projects, hydroelectric plants. And Alberta had objected to this legislation because they had argued su- successfully at the Court of Appeal level that the federal government was regulating in areas of provincial jurisdiction. And they actually made this argument successfully at the Supreme Court with the decision coming out last Friday. And I've called it a surprise blow to the Trudeau government because, frankly, I was, I've was i not been especially optimistic with the Supreme Court lately. And with one of the justices, Justice Russ Brown, who is a well-known proponent of a strong division of powers, he is now off the bench and he did not participate in this decision. I think that fact made me even less optimistic, but it was a surprise success in a 5-2 decision. The Supreme Court struck out, uh, or they didn't actually strike it, it was a reference, but they declared certain provisions to be unconstitutional um, that related to the designated projects list. Now, as I said, this legislation is extremely complicated, so I'll try to explain it at a very high level. Basically, what happens is that projects that are on a designated project list will be subject to federal impact assessment review, which is a lengthy, years-long process of reviewing different projects on a wide range of impacts, things like economic, social, health, environmental, and even gender-related impacts. Essentially, the legislation At a very high level, the way to think about it is that it gave the federal government and the minister in particular a veto power over natural resource projects, including projects entirely within one province. And Alberta and Saskatchewan in particular, which have a huge bounty of natural resources that they would like to develop for the benefit of the people in those provinces, they in particular were finding their projects getting halted. And What the Supreme Court found was that the designated projects portion of the legislation 
is ultra vires parliament, which means it's outside the scope of the authority of parliament, and they did not have authority to create these this legislation or legislate this particular way. And the majority reached this conclusion because they found that the Impact Assessment Act isn't directed at regulating effects within federal jurisdictions as defined by the Impact Assessment Act, and that because the effects don't drive the the schemes, decision-making functions, and they don't align with what is in fact within federal legislative jurisdiction. It was enough for a project to sort of so much as just like glance over federal jurisdiction, and that would be enough to have it subject to the legislation. So there's a famous case before this called the Greenhouse Gas Emission Pricing Act. And that's also commonly referred to as the carbon tax case, where the court found that the federal government's power to regulate for the peace, order, and good government of Canada could make things subject to federal jurisdiction like greenhouse gas emissions. And one of the concerns that people had about this legislation is that you know most projects, most natural resource projects will have some impact on greenhouse gas emissions. And greenhouse gas emissions cross provincial jurisdiction, they you know float around in the air. So is that enough to give the federal government jurisdiction. And the Supreme Court here in this 5-2 decision sort of stemmed that bleeding of provincial jurisdiction created by the carbon tax case and said, no, that alone is not enough. It's not enough to just sort of have this whiff of federal uh, jurisdiction to allow the government to just jump in and seize everything. And I think one of the things that has maybe been misrepresented about this decision and uh, is is that this was not a victory for Alberta because the legislation was only declared unconstitutional in part. So there's a bunch of, you know, so-called experts on Twitter saying, well, Alberta didn't really win. It's only a partial finding of unconstitutionality. But this is a resounding victory for Alberta. Like the legislation was sort of severed. It was cut. And the part that was deemed unconstitutional is like, 99% of what the problem is. The part that is like 1% that the court said is fine relates to projects that are wholly within uh, federally, federally owned lands, so which like obviously Alberta doesn't care about, or projects that are outside of Canada, which also Alberta and Saskatchewan, the provinces don't care about this. So people who say that this was, you know, oh, it's unconstitutional in part, so Alberta didn't really win, like, give me a break. This was a huge victory. And the Canadian Constitution Foundation actually played a really important role in this outcome of the finding that the court could sever the legislation and find some parts constitutional, this, this small secondary scheme about federal lands and um, uh, projects outside of Canada. We argued that the court could split the legislation. They could make a finding that part of it, the 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 part that everyone's concerned with is unconstitutional, but these other parts are not a problem. We were actually the only party. We were an intervener in this case, not a party. I apologize. We were the only one arguing that the court could separate out that unconstitutional portion from the constitutional part of the law that dealt with projects on federal lands. Without our participation in the case by the wonderful lawyers at BLG, I I wonder if the court would have reached the same conclusion. So 
the the legislation has been declared unconstitutional. And I think one of the big questions is what happens next, because, of course, the government, the Trudeau government wants to make sure that the plan, the projects that they had previously stopped or indefinitely stalled will remain stalled. I don't think that their their plans on that are changing their the question is just how are they actually going to achieve that? Uh, Minister Jonathan Wilkinson said that the the government is going to put in some minor changes, some some surgical changes to the legislation. I don't know what on earth he is talking about because the portions of the law that were declared unconstitutional are really core to the function of the act. And the government is going to have to make really significant legislative amendments. And I have said in in a YouTube video I put out yesterday, and I'll repeat it now because I like the line, he said it's a, you know, surgical amendments. And I said, you know, if this is a surgical amendment, it is on a fatally wounded patient who needs like open heart surgery and a lot of help. Like you're, this isn't like some minor slicing and dicing. This is like, you're trying to save this patient's life because he is, the Supreme Court has fatally wounded this legislation. So I don't know how they're going to achieve that, but they say they're going to try. I'm looking forward to seeing what proposals get put forward. Josh, any reaction to the Supreme Court decision? Yeah, so the the people on Twitter who you're talking about who are saying like, oh, well, this wasn't entirely struck down, so it's not this resounding victory. Um, they, they really don't understand what's going on here because essentially what this act did was give the federal government a veto over all kinds of projects, pretty much any big project. And that was because uh, they have you know some level of jurisdiction over certain things like fisheries or um, Indians and lands reserved for the Indians. And no one was no one questioned that they have some power to regulate those things. The question is whether they can veto projects where uh, most of the questions are in uh, provincial hands. And uh, I wrote about this for The Hub, and I it, I, I wrote this piece. The title, the headline they put on it was, uh, the stunning hubris of Bill C-69 has come crashing back to earth. And that sounds like hyperbole, but it's not. I think this, this Impact Assessment Act was never even close to constitutional and the federal government should have known that um, but they probably thought after the greenhouse gas reference that they were were in the clear um, one one concern that i do have and this was raised in an email to me by a, a retired constitutional lawyer named jack wright is that um, the, the supreme court seems to be like smacking down the federal government here where they say that you know just because we said you can regulate greenhouse gases in the greenhouse gas reference and do that under the national concern branch of the peace order and good government a clause doesn't mean you can you know regulate just any pollution uh, that has interprovincial effects um, that sounds really good but uh, the Supreme Court was also saying that this was in part because they didn't you know lead any evidence on those things so I, I think Jack is saying that um, this sort of leaves the door open to the future if they want to say, you know, greenhouse gases are an interprovincial effect and um, they may still be able to regulate some of those things. So that's a little bit of concern I have. But in general, it's a really, really good decision. And what makes it such an important decision for me is that um, Canada sort of lives another day. Like to me, this was an existential threat to 
the unity of Canada because it was basically saying, you know, if Ontarians and Quebecers are in power in Ottawa, which they more or less are right now because they have most of the seats in, uh, most of the seats are from Ottawa and Quebec in the, in the current liberal government, that they can sort of veto whatever Saskatchewan, Saskatchewanians and Albertans want to do. And then if there was a future conservative government and they had most of their power out in the West, they would be able to veto things that, you know, Quebec or Ontario wanted to do. And that's just not what the constitution said. So if the, so if the, um, if the Supreme court had gone the other way with this decision, then um, it would have been an existential threat to unity because we would have been living in this situation where, you know, the Supreme court in Ottawa were just clearly not following the law, clearly not following the division of powers. And that would sort of give the separatists more legitimacy in a sense, whether we're talking about, you know, Albertan separatists or Quebec separatists. So I'm kind of a weird person. Like I actually was like very, very worried about this decision and what it would mean for national unity. I think that goes back to, you know, being a child of the 1995 referendum. I think Christine and Joanna, you're around the same age as me. So you might remember what it was like, but. Uh, so like, close, I'm, so scary. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, yes and no. I mean, I, I was, uh, I think I was in grade four and my class held a referendum on whether Quebec should separate. And I was the only one who voted yes. What? Uh, <laughs> Turncoat? Like, I'm done with Quebec. Get rid of Why? them. Why? That's so like, weird. You know, I know. I know. Um, but now I'm, now I see it completely the, the other way. Um, but yeah, and I remember I had, I had a nightmare when I was a kid around this time that like, if the referendum was successful, I had this nightmare when I was a kid that like Quebec would like physically separate from Canada and like float they were, like excavated off and send it off from yeah, Turtle Island. <laughs> exactly. So, so I was very conflicted. So um, I did vote, I did vote in that referendum for Quebec to separate though. So, um, but anyway, I'm a weirdo who worries. Duly noted. I was, I was very, I was very concerned. So anyway, I'm pleasantly surprised. This is in like Northern Ontario. This was on the <laughs> Quebec border. So oh, okay. it was a big deal up there. There's a lot oh, of Franco, wow. Franco Ontarians who are very concerned about it. And um, yeah, so anyway, very glad that the, the decision went the other way. Um, Joanna, what are your thoughts? Yeah, well, I think um, you're right to point out that people get so short-sighted about provincial rights stuff since, you know, we've been under a liberal government for, what, like 10 years now? Coming up on 10 years, people always think associate provincial rights with, like, conservative arguments, but uh, the, the, the tides may be changing soon and you may have a more Western-heavy conservative government in power, and we would not want them to be able to override, you know, the intentions, preferences, and interests of Ontario um, and Quebec either. Um, and so was very pleased with this decision. I don't think I quite had the same existential feeling about it because I've been tied up with existential feelings about Israel. Um, but uh, but you're certainly you're certainly right and was definitely very proud that the CCF was able to participate in such a meaningful way. I think our arguments about severance really showed the court just like a way that they could do this easily which to the non-lawyers listening, a lot of good advocacy is just showing a judge um, how she doesn't have to be scared to make a declaration that like all hell isn't going to break loose. And so I think our arguments about severance were really important there. 
Um, and then I just wonder about the implications for some of the other ambitious projects that the Ottawa, that the government has um, pending right now. So, for example, um, electric car quotas and clean energy standards, um, even the clean fuel regulations, which is already enforced, are these in question now? Is their constitutionality in question? Um, and we can link it. I was uh, reading an op-ed by Grant Bishop. Um, who is, I think, some type of energy policy consultant out in Alberta. And he was arguing in the Globe and Mail that uh, Ottawa should actually bring a federal reference to the Supreme Court to seek clarity on the constitutionality of some of these other initiatives, um, that uh, with this decision, there may be sh shaky constitutional grounds for some of the regulations that are both already in, fo in force and are kind of on the docket, proposed to be regulated, um, both for the sake of clarity, for the sake of investor certainty. So anyways, uh, uh, we don't often get to have good news in our line of work, um, defending liberty under the Constitution. So we have to do a victory dance, and I'm sure it's not the last time you'll hear about this when we do. Um, so Josh, speaking about Israel and Gaza, uh, you had an interesting headline that had to do with the a member of the Ontario legislature um, stepping out of bounds and being reined in. Uh, tell us about that. Um, I, I got to warn you, I'm going to get a little bit nerdy on you, but hopefully it's uh, hopefully it's interesting. I was uh, down a rabbit hole last night where I was reading you know, 100 year old Irish constitutional law, law cases. And I was thinking, why am I doing this? But um, it's actually pretty interesting. So this this idea too, it comes from a listener named Robert Cook, who wrote into us to draw our attention to this story that I had heard a little bit about, but I hadn't really thought too much about until his email. And Robert's interested in the news that Ontario's PC MPPs have introduced a motion into the legislature to censure one of their members, uh, Hamilton Center MPP Sarah Jama is her name. And uh, Robert writes, although this may be an entirely legitimate use of the government's power, from a philosophical standpoint, it seems antithetical to freedom of expression. And so thanks, Robert. Thanks for this uh, idea. So for those who haven't been following, uh, Jama is one of the more sort of more radical New Democrat MPPs here in Ontario. Um, she's only about 23 or 24, and she kind of has that fervor of like a university uh, anti-Israeli apartheid student activist in her her still. Basically what happened is, is that on October 10th, so just over a week ago now, when the whole world was, you know, trying to come to grips with the fact that Hamas terrorists had murdered hundreds of young people at a music festival, wiped out entire families, including little kids leaving, you know, blood soaked bedrooms, you know, launched RPGs at civilians hiding from them in their safe rooms and kidnapped hundreds of people who are still uh, now stuck in in Gaza, going through an absolute nightmarish situation. She decided to put out a statement that was quote, reflecting on her role as a politician participating in a settler colonial system. And she didn't um, say a single word about the atrocities against Israeli civilians, but she did have a lot of criticism for Israel, naturally. Um, she called them an apartheid state. She accused them of chemical attacks. She 
referred to this, you know, violent retaliation as being rooted in settler colonialism. And, uh, you know, that's basically the line that a lot of people are using to justify this, this horrendous attack. So this actually wouldn't surprise anybody who follows Ontario politics closely because JAMA has a long history of anti-Israel activism. Earlier this year, she was uh, forced to apologize after she uh, posted on Twitter uh, a retweet where she called an actual terrorist from Islamic Jihad, one of the terrorist groups in, in Gaza, quote, a martyr for freedom. And um, she was forced to apologize for that. And then after this latest tweet, the new Ontario NDP leader, Marit Stiles, again demanded that she apologize, and she did sort of apologize, but then she pinned her original tweet to the top of her Twitter, which is like a very um, Gen Z kind of thing to do, I guess. And amazingly, she still hasn't been kicked out of caucus. But um, back to the censure motion. So yesterday in the legislature, Queen's Park, uh, Paul Calandra moved this motion that says this house expresses its disapproval of and disassociates itself from continued disreputable conduct by the member from Hamilton Center, most specifically her use of social media to make anti-Semitic and discriminatory statements related to the existence of the state of Israel and its defense against Hamas terrorists, and that this house demands that the member desist from further conduct that is inappropriate, inappropriate and unbecoming of a member, and that the speaker is authorized not to recognize the member in the house until the member retracts and deletes her statements on social media and makes an apology in her place in this house. So if this motion passes next week when it's voted upon or whenever it's voted upon, the speaker can choose to like stop JAMA from speaking unless she apologizes in the house on camera. And this would appear to be a free speech issue as Robert points out, but the interesting thing is that while everyone has a constitutional right under the charter to freedom of expression, a court would almost certainly either not review her decision by the legislature at all or find that they couldn't do anything about it and let this you know, censure stand, assuming that it passes. And um, that's because legislators, legislators have what's called parliamentary privilege. And these are privileges that the court basically can't interfere with, including the power of legislatures to regulate their own internal affairs and also the power to discipline their own members. Parliamentary privilege has been defined by the courts as the sum of the privileges, immunities, and powers enjoyed by the Senate, House of Commons, and provincial legislative assemblies, and each member individually, without which they could not discharge their functions. And it's also called the uh, corollary of the separation of powers. So that's a lot of words to say, basically, it's like a shield against the executive, which at the time it emerged was like literally the, the king and the queen interfering with parliament, but also vis-a-vis um, -vis the courts. So in, an, in a parliamentary privilege case that was brought last year, Ontario Superior Court Justice Frego reviewed some of the case law on parliamentary privilege and noted that the effect of a matter falling within the scope of parliamentary privilege is that its exercise cannot be reviewed by an external body, including a court. And uh, this justice noted that in the Duffy case, which involved former Senator Mike Duffy, Ontario's Court of Appeal had said that privilege recognized Parliament's exclusive jurisdiction to deal with complaints within its sphere of activity, thus providing immunity from judicial review.
And so you might think that the charter right to free expression being a constitutional right trumps parliamentary privilege, but it doesn't because those are two different parts of the Constitution. And as Justice McLaughlin explained in New Brunswick Broadcasting, which is this 1993 case where the majority found the Speaker of New Brunswick's legislature could decide whether and how its proceedings were recorded. McLaughlin explained that this it's a basic rule that one part of the Constitution can't abrogate or diminish another part of the Constitution. So how do we know that this privilege is constitutional? And in New Brunswick Broadcasting, she basically explained, Justice McLaughlin, that is, that this is from historical tradition. It's also from the principle that, you know, these legislatures can't operate properly if courts are interfering with them. And also she located it in the preamble to the Constitution Act 1867, uh, which incorporated the UK's mostly unwritten constitution. And uh, having, unconst having constitutional status, these rights can't be abrogated, she said. So um, McLaughlin basically said that courts can determine whether parliamentary privilege exists, but once they determine that, the court has no power to regulate, regulate the exercise of that power. And that makes sense because if a court can interfere with the legislator, legislature's day-to-day -day business, we wouldn't be able to maintain the separation of powers that allows the court to you know, maintain its legitimacy when it's reviewing legislation for things like compliance with the charter. And so JAMA, it's not to say JAMA doesn't have free speech. Legis legislators actually were like the first people in our common law tradition to get freedom of, of speech. And it's written into the UK Bill of Rights, uh, which has achieved sort of semi-constitutional status here in Canada. And all of this is to basically say that, you know, at the end of the day, it is up to JAMA's own colleagues and the Speaker of the Legislature to decide how to discipline her. And so if her freedom of speech is interfered with, she can turn to her colleagues, but she can't turn to the courts to ask them to review it. So I hope that wasn't too nerdy of an explanation. I find this stuff interesting. Joanna, uh, what do you think? Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know if I have a ton to add. You did just like go full on like... Uh... <laughs> you know, extreme nerd. But I will say it's it's good to note this, the um, the recent example of how sort of parliamentary privilege once invoked is sort of impenetrable by the courts that comes to mind is uh, Doug Ford, when he was issued a summons to come give evidence at the Emergencies Act Commission hearing in, last fall in Ottawa, and uh, he asserted parliamentary privilege. And that was just a non-starter. Like every lawyer was like, well, we can't bring this to the court. Like, that's his right. I mean... Uh, it was pretty uh, wimpy move of him, but it is what it is. And so, yes, these are just two different parts of the Constitution. And, and you know, they do feed into an ultimate tradition of liberty. So I suppose that, yeah, it's fair enough. Christine, any thoughts? Um, my thoughts, I'm, I find the stuff on parliamentary privilege really interesting, but I think I want to take a, a kind of different approach, which is to react to the notion of speech having social consequences or employment consequences versus, uh, you know, the government coming in and, and punishing you for your speech. And I have concerns about the government coming in and punishing you for your speech. I don't think that speech is without consequences. And JAMA's 
comments are worthy of social condemnation. We should widely condemn the things that she said as bordering on anti-Semitism, if not being anti-Semitic. And we should call her out for that. And she should face repercussions from the caucus, from the leader of the party, uh, which it seems like she has faced some consequences, but um, not every not every consequence for your speech is a constitutional one. Like not everything engages the constitution. And there's a an employment lawyer who put out a statement, uh, Howard Levitt, who I who I know. I've interviewed him on my show. I have friends at his firm. I've met him many times. He put out a a statement related to professional consequences from your employer if you've expressed sympathy for Hamas or if you've participated in one of the Hamas supporting hate fests that we saw across Canada. And he said that if if an employer expresses sympathy for Hamas, the employees have options. And if your employee expresses sympathy, you as a manager have have options. And that it's it's Levitt's perspective that an employee in a public facing or managerial uh, position who participated in one of those hate fest protests or events should be fired for cause, which is an incredibly high threshold, but he thinks that that they can be. And he said, if you fire an employee for cause when they're public facing and they participated in a pro Hamas sympathizing event, you can fire them for cause. And if they sue you, I will represent you for free, which is pretty, pretty cool. I like that. Joanna, why don't we go on to your news headline now? So we wanted to talk a little bit about uh, former Newfoundland Premier Brian Peckford um, and some other parties and his challenge to the federal vaccine mandate, because this is not getting much coverage in the news and there are a few things to discuss about it. So this was brought, as I said, by former Premier Brian Peckford, um, as well as uh, Maxime Bernier. And they challenged this federal travel order, which required you to be uh, fully vaccinated in order to travel by train or by air. Um, they tr- they challenged it as a violation of their Section 2A Freedom and Conscience Rights, Section 6 Rights to Mobility, Section 7 Right to Life, Liberty and Security of the Person. Um, and they also brought an argument at the time, first instance, that the order exceeded the authority of the Aeronautics Act, which is actually how the government brought in this ordering council. Um, And the act allows a minister to issue orders related to, quote unquote, a significant risk, uh, direct or indirect to aviation safety or the safety of the public, um, which the government argued uh, gave them a broad enough ambit to act, even to restrict travel to people, only to people who could prove they were fully vaccinated because the term public safety is a very broad term. Um, But at the time, we had some discussions about this at the CCF, and we were wondering if a rule that is clearly in substance directed at public health was ever intended to be subsumed under the Aeronautics Act. Uh, So these applicants also challenged the fact that it was brought as a directive of the Minister of Transport um, and did not receive parliamentary scrutiny and debate. So as you'll remember, or maybe not, because all of this kind of got mushed in, um, that vaccine requirement was suspended as of June 2022. But at the time, the health minister, Yves Duclos, 
made some very ambiguous comments. He referred to this, meaning the period of suspending the vaccination requirement. He said it was a transition in policies, um, and he strongly hinted that uh, the two-shot mandate could be converted into a mandate extending to mandatory boosters um, during the fall respiratory virus season. And that didn't happen, um, but there has been sort of similar comments as we head into our current fall uh, respiratory system uh, season. So in any event, the federal court issued its reasons in the Peckford matter in October 2022, uh, and they found the case moot. So the, the justice, uh, Jocelyn Gagné, found that the use of judicial resources for a five-day hearing when the mandate had already been lifted outweighed the public interest in having the case heard on the merits. Um, so the applicants have challenged this, and their appeal hearing has been heard over the last week. They argued that uh, the federal court judge failed to give proper weight and consideration given to uh, the, what they call the Minister of Transport's threats made in another public statement that the Minister of Transport would make adjustments based on the latest public health advice and science to keep Canadians and the transportation system safe and secure. Um, they claimed that the judge was in error uh, in the three-part legal test for assessing whether a case is moot. And they particularly, I won't go through the test, but the third branch of the test is that uh, the courts need to limit themselves to their proper adjudicative role as opposed to making freestanding legislative type pronouncements. Uh, and they argued that this judge failed to consider this factor. Uh, and they want the court to determine, they want an answer as to whether the travel mandate was constitutional because these impacts on mobility rights and security of the person as it relate to bodily autonomy are important. Um, so obviously we had a mootness case recently as well. Um, that was heard, of course, in Vancouver at the beginning of our three-day appeal of our challenge to the BC government's vaccine passport system. Um, and the government very forcefully argued that, that because, of course, BC had lifted its vaccine passport, certainly by the time of the appeal, uh, they argued that the case was moot and that it would be uh, an unwise use of use of judicial economy, uh, resources um, to hear the case. And this was dismissed by the court, the government's mootness argument on the first day of the hearing. The decision concluded that the nature of public health emergencies is such that there is a significant possibility that orders like those under challenge in this case may arise in the future. And their duration, however, may well not be so long as to allow an appeal to come before this court during the currency of a live controversy. So in other words, by the time you get to the day in court, it is very likely, it will very often be the case that the policy, whether it be the federal uh, vaccine mandate requirement or a vaccine passport, um, or even for that case, for that matter, um, the Emergencies Act declaration, which was also only enforced for a short period. Imagine if we couldn't have a judge pronounce on the constitutionality of that um, because it was no longer in force. And yet, indeed, the government, the federal government did argue that the case was moot at our hearing. Um, very clear that the judge uh, did not accept that. 
Um, so in any event, we will be watching to see uh, whether the federal court judge's determination of mootness is overturned. I think we've all seen um, that we all have stake. And certainly it would be interesting to know the determination on the merits. Um, we had real concerns about this policy at the time. Um, by the time that these policies were brought into place, uh, we were already experiencing a surge of the Omicron variant where it was well-established, uncontroversial, that vaccination did not prevent transmission or spread. Um, so the justification had to be something about reducing hospitalizations. I will not get into that. We do have a bit more of a discussion about this case and our thoughts about it in our forthcoming book, which will be out in just a few weeks, Pandemic Panic, which you can pre-order on Amazon. Um, Christine, any thoughts about the Brian Peckford case and this mootness challenge? Yeah, I'm I think it it ha has been a huge theme throughout the pandemic that cases are dismissed on procedural grounds. We saw this with so many cases. And this is yet another example of the government and the courts finding a procedural reason not to consider all of these really significant infringements on rights that happened on a really fast and short term basis. The judge in our case said, in part, our case was proceeding because our lawyer was directing the litigation more than any of the other parties because there were other parties. And I think we're very fortunate that we have been represented by such exceptional lawyers, uh, Jeffrey Trotter in Vancouver and Sujit Chowdhury and Jenani uh, Shemunganathan in the Emergencies Act case that has led to us overcoming these procedural hurdles that have been so difficult for other organizations to overcome. And we're so grateful to be represented by such excellent counsel. And we're only able to hire this exceptional counsel because of the generosity of the donors that we have supporting our work. Uh, so that's what I have to say about that. I think it's exceptional that we have overcome these mootness arguments. Josh, anything to add on that? Just two quick points. So, you know, our courts in Canada move very, very slowly, especially if you look in relation to the United States. And so if these cases are found to be moot, which sometimes they genuinely are, and the courts don't exercise that discretion that they have to hear them anyway, then governments can get away with all kinds of charter violations just by, you know, removing those rights violating uh, policies before before the hearing. And, and then my other point is just that um, these vaccine mandates and these travel restrictions, I think because most Canadians were vaccinated, I think it was, you know, what was it 85 or 90% of adults got vaccinated and didn't have to worry about this stuff. They don't realize how extremely um, horrible these, these rules were to the people who, you know, exercise their own right to liberty and security of the person and chose not to get vaccinated. I had a friend, for example, you know, for, for very long period of time, couldn't, couldn't travel at all and if you you know if you have family members say you have like an elderly elderly relative in another province you're not able to see them unless you get in a car and drive thousands of kilometers so um even if you're vaccinated you need to think about how 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 much of an impingement these these mandates were and whether they were really worth it considering that we know even with the vaccine you can get covid and you can you can transmit it so that's all I want to say about that. Um, let's take a break. When we come back, Christine, you can update us on a really interesting hearing you went to earlier this week. 
which was about whether math tests for teachers are racially discriminatory. Hi, I'm Russell from the CCF. In case you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to our email newsletter, The Freedom Update, to get updates from me every week about our ongoing work and the legal stories in Canada that keep us interested. It's one of the best ways to stay up to date. Subscribe at the ccf.ca slash freedom update. Okay, so my update from this week for the organization is I was in court early this week on a case about math and whether a math test for teachers is racial discrimination. Uh, this case, I, I did some updates on our YouTube channel about it. This case is just like, I sometimes can't believe it. It is a real case because it's so preposterous. This is a math test that the government said needed to be created because math uh, teacher, teacher candidates were graduating from teacher's college and then they were being assigned to teach math. These questions were pulled from a bank of math questions that are already given to students. So at most, these teachers were being expected to do math at the level of a 14-year-old who they teach. And basically, can't a bunch of candidates who didn't want to do this test uh, argued that when, when looking at the pass-fail rates of this math test, the candidate said that these pass-fail rates differs along racial lines, specifically when you compared Black and Indigenous teacher candidates to white teacher candidates. There was a, a difference in outcome. There was a lower pass rate among Black and Indigenous candidates than white candidates. And they said that this disparate impact made the test discriminatory. And the government responded with sort of three separate arguments. First, they said there isn't even enough data here to say that there's a, a, even a disparity. They would not, they did not accept that there's even a difference here because there's so little information. This test was in place for such a short period of time. So they said, when we look at the overall pass rates, and this includes retakes of the test, because you can retake the test an unlimited number of times. They said, when you look at that, it's like 97% of white candidates pass and 90% of black candidates pass. So there's not that big a difference here. There's, there's said that this is not enough to show a disparate Im impact. And then the, the government said, when you look at people who, who, um, who didn't pass and then didn't retake the test, uh, they just stopped after one time, the data is just too small to draw any conclusions. It, I think it was something like 131 people failed the test and never retook it. And among them, only about 50 people actually replied to information about the demographic uh, survey. So we only have demographic information from, you know, 50 or so people. And of that, you know, 24 or 25 or something were Black. But the government said, you know, if you're looking at 25 Black teacher candidates, that is just not enough data to extrapolate a general proposition about the entire black teacher candidate population like that is not enough people to draw any conclusions that this test is discriminatory there's all kinds of idiosyncratic reasons why 24 people may not have retaken the test or why they might have failed the test that day maybe they got sick maybe they moved away maybe they decide they don't want to be a teacher for some other unrelated reason unrelated to the test so the government said there's just not even enough data here to conclude that there's a difference along racial lines. So when you look at the test for, for Section 15 discrimination, what you need to show is that there is a, 
a distinction on a protected ground. In this case, it was race. And that that distinction is discriminatory. So on the first step, the government says there's not even a distinction. On the second step, the government says there's also no discrimination. The government said for a whole list of reasons, the test's not discriminatory. Like you can rewrite the test an unlimited number of times for free. You get free prep materials. Um, another thing the government pointed out is if you fail the test, no one even knows. Uh, the, the College of Teachers is only told if you if you pass. So there's no stigma associated with failing. There are all kinds of math courses that teachers can, teacher candidates can take to improve their math scores. The government said that this is a diagnostic tool to determine if teachers need help with math so that they, over the course of their teacher's teaching degree, can seek out that help and improve their scores. And that that is actually a good thing. It's not discriminatory. It's important for teachers to know math at a level that they are able to teach it. And uh, other reasons they said the test isn't discriminatory. The government said this is a two-hour test, but teacher candidates actually are given three hours to write it. And they screened the uh, math test for bias, whatever whatever that means. I don't actually know how arithmetic questions can be biased, but I'm sure they paid a, some DEI consultants a lot of money to weed out any potentially biased math questions. So we intervened on this this part of the argument about whether or not the test was discriminatory. And we argued um, that arbitrariness, this idea of arbitrariness is, um, is an important factor in determining if there is even discrimination. And if a government, we said, if they craft and implement a law in a way that actually accommodates and impacted groups' actual capacity and needs, then the law isn't arbitrary and it's rarely discriminatory. Actual capacities matter. The, this is related to the job function. Teach, teaching math requires teachers to know math. This is not an arbitrary distinction. And when there's a lack of arbitrariness, the law is not going to be discriminatory or will rarely, rarely be discriminatory. So this all comes out of this, this strange conclusion from the divisional court, the lower court, that the math test is racist, all kind of stems from this, this 2020 Supreme Court decision in a case called Frazier, which was a Section 15 discrimination case. And I've kind of described this math test is Frazier on speed. It's just taken the conclusions and theories about adverse impact and discrimination of su and substantive equality and just run with it to the far ex the furthest point you possibly can. And I, I want to quote from the, the dissent in Frazier because it's a really important point and I think illustrates what's happened here. The, the dissent in Frazier said that substantive equality has become almost infinitely malleable, allowing judges to invoke it as rhetorical cover, cover for their own policy preferences in deciding a given case. The discretion, this discretion does not accord with, but rather departs from the rule of law. And I think that this is an example of infinite malleability and of the courts supplanting their own policy preferences. The divisional court said the math test is discriminatory, but you should have a math course instead. It's like pure supplantation, right? Like it's just saying like, I don't like the test. 
you should do this instead. That's not the role of the court whatsoever. And also, there's no evidence that a math course would also not have the same discriminatory problems um, that have been alleged in this math test as well. Like a course is is also, it would be unfathomable that every demographic group is going to perform at exactly the same distribution and success rate. Like that's just not reality. And a course is going to have the same is going to reflect that same reality that is reflected in this test. So the test is actually does more to accommodate difference and allows for improvement in a way a course might not, because a course also is pass fail at the end of the day. So that's that's my take. Usually these decisions take about six months. So I uh, I hope that we'll get this one sooner because it's an important precedent. Let's move on to our bad legal take, starting with you, Josh. My bad legal take goes to Dwayne Bratt, who's this Calgary political scientist that the media often turns to when they want sort of an anti-Alberta opinion. And last Friday was no exception. He wrote an article in the Globe and Mail right after the Impact Assessment Act decision dropped and claimed that it was, quote, not good for business. And um, I won't get too deeply into his argument because it doesn't actually make a lot of sense. But but his argument is is, is crazy. Uh, th there's no question that this decision is good for business. And uh, for example, you know, he concedes in this art article that the Impact Assessment Act decision will lead to more natural gas power plants being built in Alberta. Obviously, that's good for business. You know, affordable energy is not just good for consumers. It's good for all kinds of businesses, especially big industrial pro projects. And uh, it looks like more natural gas plants will go ahead. And you can also ask business leaders what, what they think of this decision. So Mike Martins of the Independent Contractors and Business Association of Alberta said, I think there's going to be a lot of joy, a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of optimism that perhaps we can now signal that we're open for business. Another one of these leaders, uh, Scott Crockett, who's a VP comms at the Business Council of Alberta said, our council sees this as a positive outcome in particular, because this will add some greater predictability and certainty to getting major projects built in Canada. And finally, the Mining Association said, prolonged uncertainty is a roadblock to building the mines and infrastructure that we urgently need to achieve our climate change, supply chain and security and critical minerals goals. And, you know, obviously the CMA knows what it's talking about. Um, it was kind of ironic that this op-ed from Bratt was printed in the Globe and Mail because they've been publishing article after article explaining how it's getting almost impossible to build a mine in Canada. One stat, which I thought was insane, is uh, the average length of time that it takes to get a mine built in Canada is 12 to 15 years and going up every year. And uh, a lot of mines take more than 25 years to get uh, from the, the beginning to operational. And you can compare that to Australia, where it takes about five years. And Australia is like our biggest competitor here. And, you know, they're basically eating our lunch. Um, they, the TSX here in Toronto, this is like the world's leading stock exchange for, for minerals, stocks and mining. And Canada has almost no big mining companies left. Like we are not building mines anymore. We're not building anything in this country, really. So, uh, Dwayne Bratt, you're wrong. This decision is extremely good for business and you just have to ask business leaders to... We're building things. We're building safe injection sites. What are you talking about, Josh? Fair enough. Yeah. 
That's true. And we built a, we built an LRT line in Ontario that's been sitting there just like rotting unopened uh, with, uh, you know, all the glass smashed up because, uh, well, we're not really sure why, but anyway, Joetta, what's your, what's yeah, your. They, they literally found who killed Tupac and they still haven't finished the Eglinton LRT. Okay. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, okay, so I'm going to um, call out uh, two Canadian cabinet ministers, Melanie Jolie, our foreign affairs minister, and Francois Champagne, our minister of innovation, um, who both were very quick to take to their keyboards on X and denounce Israel um, when news came out on Tuesday night um, that a hospital in Gaza City had been bombed. Um, so Jolie tweeted, bombing a hospital is an unthinkable act. And there's no doubt that doing so is absolutely illegal. Uh, Champagne tweeted, uh, the attack on the hospital is horrifying and against international human humanitarian law. Uh, now, just to be clear, we are not disputing the legal take that bombing a hospital is illegal. It certainly is, um, although uh, it is complex in Gaza because Hamas is known to put its military operations in hospitals, schools, and other civilian centers. Um, but that's not what's so bad about this. these takes. Uh, what's so bad is that our ministers relied immediately in a knee-jerk fas fashion on the unverified reports of the Gaza Ministry of Health, which sounds official, but I think it's important to remember, Hamas is the government in Gaza. All of the government ministries in Gaza are Hamas. There is no part of the uh, government in Gaza that you should not see as compromised. Um, and so the credulousness is frankly shocking. This happens every time. This is a very serious informational asymmetry that in every conflict with the Palestinians, Israel understands itself to have two objectives. First, of course, and primarily to destroy its enemies, to deter further attacks, um, to preserve its legitimacy, and sorry, as a second, to preserve its legitimacy in a rules-based international order. And Israel, in fact, might be the only country that regularly acts against its own security interests for the reason um, that it cares so much that it is, in fact, existentially essential for Israel to preserve legitimacy on the world stage, to preserve support of the U.S. Like literally Israel is a tiny country surrounded by hostile countries. It would not survive without international support. So this is not purely altruistic. It's a real thing. Um, and I want to quote the podcaster, Sam Harris, who did a really important podcast about uh, moral equivalency. And he said, consider just one of these norms. Whenever an armed conflict breaks out, some groups will use human shields and others will be deterred by their use. To be clear, I'm not talking about the taking of hostages from the opposing side. That is appalling. And it is now happening in Gaza. But it's separate. I'm talking about something far more inscrutable. It's astounding, really, that it happens at all. I'm talking about people who will strategically put their own civilians, their own women and children into the line of fire so that they can inflict further violence upon their enemies, knowing their enemies have a more civilized moral code that will re render them reluctant to shoot back for fear of killing or maiming innocents. If anywhere in this universe, cynicism and nihilism can be found together in their most perfect forms, it is here. There are not many bright lines that divide good and evil in our world, but this is one of them. So it is very directly harming 
um, to Israel's security to have these reckless jumps to judgment. And of course, I should have said, but many of you will be aware, as of Thursday morning, two things are true. It looks exceedingly clear based on audio, radar, video footage, even uh, assessment of like the depth of the of the of the rocket uh, impact pictures of where this attack happened, that it was very likely a misfired rocket by Pal Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Um, and two, uh, both of the ministers have not tweeted further or taken down these tweets. Um, so please do better. Christine, what's your bad legal take? Yeah, I those tweets are still up. I just checked. And that's it's just appalling to me. And so one of the people who has been really critical of this uh, is Andrew Coyne, who's a journalist. So uh, kudos to Coyne for calling this out and, and saying how appalling it is that these ministers are lecture. These are the same people who lecture us about misinformation and disinformation, yet are sharing disinformation from which seems to have come from Hamas. Uh, so um I think Coin has been really good on that particular topic. So it makes me sad to now have one of Coin's other tweets as my bad legal take. Um, because I I, you know, he's one of those people I agree with sometimes and then I agree with disagree with strongly other times. So his tweet is in response to the Impact Assessment Act decision, which we talked about at the top of this show. And um legal act, intellectual and and former CCF executive director Howard Anglin tweeted out his approval of the decision in the Impact Assessment Act, which is a really important case. And Coyne responded to that tweet saying, ah, yes, as I expected, a reliably conservative fulminator against judicial activism angrily protesting at, well, no, he seems perfectly content for the court to stomp all over parliament this time. And this is just such a bizarre take because it completely misunderstands the the case. I mean, this was a case bought brought by the parliament of Alberta against the parliament in Ottawa. So this is this is not about judicial activism. This is about which which parliament is right. It's it's not stomping all over parliament parliament's will it's choosing the will of one parliament over another and this is like fundamentally what the case is about and a court determining jurisdiction in a case like this is never has never been the concern of legal conservatives and coin is completely misrepresenting the position of people like anglin and people who have viewed themselves as intellectually conservative legal scholars who con are concerned with judicial activism. This has never been what their concern is. Um, the court in this case upheld the Alberta legislature, and that has never been what conservatives have opposed. So I think I think Coyne just like wanted some type of hot take on the decision because he subsequently said, by the way, I agree with the court's decision in the Impact Assessment Act. So I don't even know what's going on here. I, I don't even know if he read the decision before saying how wrong Howard Anglin was to be happy about the decision that he also was happy about. So it's just a, like a really weird, bad take this week. Um, that's it for me. Yeah, I totally agree with you, Christine. Like I, I love some of Coin's opinions, but sometimes they're just uh, they're just out in left field. 
as usual, uh, we hope you'll rate us, review us, and subscribe. And I really mean, I really do mean that. Like, go rate us and review us right now because it really helps us with the algorithm. And if you leave us a review, I might give you the inside story of how someone is trying to cancel Joanna at her yoga studio. <laughs> and uh, just a reminder, you can support our work by subscribing to the Canadian Constitution Foundation's YouTube channel, where you'll get even more Christine. You can follow us on Twitter. And uh, we also would appreciate it if you'd sign up for our newsletter, Freedom Update, where you can get uh, regular uh, updates from our colleague, Russ. The Canadian Constitution Foundation is a nonpartisan legal charity funded by donations. So please do donate on our website if you can. Thanks for listening.